All right, well, we're going to continue on in our study of church history. And last week, we uh, focused our study on the rise of uh, Episcopal power, the rise of the bishops, the rise in the church of this sort of singular, um, empowered person to, to lead the rest of the church in some way or another, which really serves as the ground upon which um, the more hierarchical structure of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches eventually are built. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to kind of take us into our church and look at our church's uh, way of leadership or approach to leadership and really line it up with the, the truth of Scripture in light of what we looked at last week. But we looked to just kind of set our context for our study today. We looked at a several factors in history that sort of contributed to this rise in Episcopal or bishop power and authority in the church, in this institutional type of authority in the church. And, and uh, one of the things we talked about was the enormous and very rapid uh, numerical growth of the church. That was just one sort of practical factor that led to this, probably this desire, interest, or need for some kind of more organized approach to church leadership certainly would lend itself to that anyway. Uh, the next one we looked at was the significant impact of influential heresies on the church. Remember, we studied various heresies that impacted the church. We certainly didn't cover all of them that you could bring up. We probably will reference more as we move forward into um, the different periods of church history where these uh, strands of heresy tend to be most impactful. But uh, in the first three centuries of the church history, there were several heretical movements that took root in the life of the church, and they had to be responded to in some way. They had to be responded to authoritatively. They had to be responded to in sort of an organized, collective approach. And so this sort of gave rise or or sort of served as some ground in which um, sort of an institutional power structure could emerge. Um, We talked about the emergence of concentrated church governance and authority. So this this basically became a real significant way of understanding how best to run the church. This idea of more structured, hierarchical approach to church governance, really with the writings of Ignatius, you see this emerging more prominently. Uh, Ignatius basically uh, wrote about three tiers of church governance. You had the bishop, you had the, the, the presbytery, and then you had the deacons. So he, he kind of broke it down into three distinct categories of leadership, and the bishop was certainly at the top of that hierarchical structure. That was something that sort of emerged uh, in the second, toward the end of the second and, the thir- and, and into the third century. And then this kind of led to also this rise in this emphasis on apostolic succession, particularly as it related to bishops. And you may recall last week we saw how that was really more a response or reaction to Gnostic, the Gnostic heresy, which the Gnostic, Christian Gnostic teachers uh, attributed their secret knowledge that was translated uh, through, through the uh, apostolic succession as well. So the Gnostic teachers were um, succeeded from the apostles and had this direct revelation, this direct secret knowledge that would bring enlightenment, which enlightenment in this secret knowledge was the, the way or the pathway to salvation. So 
the church responded or reacted really in a, in a man-centered, sort of humanistic kind of way to say, well, no, 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 you think that you have apostolic succession, you don't, we do. And they began to formulate these lists to, to draw their sort of their quote-unquote spiritual lineage back to the apostles, these different uh, bishops in these different regions. Several different lists emerged and, and different approaches to this emerged in that period of time. And then you have this development of the penance system that sort of emerges over time, but really it was a result or it kind of was tied to uh, the churches trying to deal with re, uh, readmitting those who had apostatized the faith back into the church. Around 250 AD, you had um, this really most intense persecution of the church under the Roman emperor Decius. And his approach was not to just kill Christians, but really to try to torture them into submission and into uh, denying the faith, into um, professing Caesar as Lord, and to making some type of sacrifice, some type of, of commitment, uh, of active worship to the traditional Roman gods. And there was many, out of a sense of weakness or out of a sense of just wanting to just make a a feigned acknowledgement to this intense persecution, not wanting to be separated from their families, whatever it might be. There were many that that became apostate under this this regime of persecution. And after the persecution subsided, um, there was many who who wanted to be readmitted to the church. They wanted to be a, a part of the communion of the church. And so they ended up developing this this approach that, turned into a system of penance um, to enable you to get access back into the communion of the church. And, and really this development of not being a part of the communion of the church was really, really meant that you were outside of saving faith. Um, and so this very church institutional view of even salvation uh, began to emerge in this period of time. But as a point of emphasis and to kind of transition to what we're going to talk about today, there are two of these, these factors that I think are most prominent um, relative to this emergence of a bishop type of church rule or church governance. And the first is really this, this emerging emphasis that you see in history on uh, this concentration of church governance and authority, um, this institutional or organized um, approach to church governance and authority that really elevated this role of bishop as the supreme sort of lead or head of the church, of each individual church. Now we talked about this, how early on, uh, through, through the first century even, through the, the full, full extent of the first century and on into the early part of the second century, um, the apostles were really unchallenged in terms of their adopted or accepted leadership as, as those who were sent by God, those who were given uh, the inspired writings, the inspired scriptures that also contained information or instruction or precept about how the church is to function, how it's to function in fellowship and in communion and in relationship with one another, but also in terms of how it's to function from a sort of a governing standpoint. The church uh, recognized the apostles' authority in, in this regard, and through this period of time, this, uh, this structure of overseers and deacons was the norm. Uh, throughout the, 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 better, the most of the first, or all of the first century and on into the second century, this was just the understood norm. The apostles 
sort of passed on this manner of church governance, and it was the norm. It, even in, in, it's kind of hard to fathom that because the 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 rise of of bishop power that ultimately led to the the rise of a sort of an imperial an imperial type church in the time of Constantine and beyond, which was the you know the Roman Catholic Church with all this hierarchical structure, ultimately under the vicar of Christ, the Pope, all that sort of the seed of this was was during this period of time where where the bishops began to rise to power. But this was and and this this was in place for you know a thousand more years until the time of the Reformation. And you see this big swath of history and this big influence that that this kind of governance had. And you're like, how, how did how did that happen? Or, or, or how could we stray so far? Or maybe some would argue that that really wasn't, that was really the way it was all along. That, that, that the Reformation was really an abomination of what history really tells us of how the church should be governed. And, and so this idea of, of overseer and deacon as the only sort of structure um, was, was really not the way it was from the very beginning. That's not true. And you, we're going to talk about that as a point of reference before we kind of move forward. That the apostles were unchallenged, and their their approach or their teaching on overseer and deacon as the structure of leadership in the church was actually referenced in the Didache. The Didache are also known as the teaching of the twelve apostles. This was written some somewhere between sixty five and eighty A.D., so very early in the time of the writings of even the New Testament. And here's what it says in the Didache: And so elect for yourselves bishops and deacons who are worthy of the Lord, gentlemen who are not fond of money, who are true and approved. This term deacon, uh, bishop is episkopos. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but it's another word for overseer. That's how it's also translated. But the Didache references this two-tiered structure where you've got overseers and deacons as the only sort of leadership structure that's mandated in the church. You also have uh, the, in the letter First Clement, Written around AD 96, this is a letter is, is attributed to a man named Clement. We're not certain of his identity, but he's representing the church in Rome, and he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's encouraging them to deal with some fallout that had resulted in leadership turnover in the church in Corinth. And he's writing to convince them uh, to, to, to reinstate the overseers that they had uh, wrongly deposed. It affirms the appointment of overseers and deacons. In, in, that's a quote. It, it affirms the appointment of overseers and deacons, referencing what we're going to look at in the New Testament in just a few minutes. Um, and even says that uh, after the time of the apostles, bishops were appointed, quote, by other reputable men with entire, the entire church giving its approval, end quote. So this reference early on to these in, from these two uh, early church documents um, sort of affirms what we see in the New Testament of overseer and deacon as the form of church leadership. And then you have the Shepherd of Hermas, which is about 88-150, another uh, document that provides confirmation of this kind of structure, this kind of church governance structure. Um, Quote, you will read yours in this city, this, this letter, you will read yours in this city with the presbyters or elders who lead the church. So it's a reference to elders in this case. Here we are told that the church leadership structure is a plurality of presbyters or elders. 
This is an, a document from AD 150. So you don't have... Um, the, the, the author of the Shepherd of Hermas also uses the term bishop, but it's always in the plural. So it's not this idea of this singular leader, this singular sort of almost like um, king-like leader over a particular church, presiding over the church. That's not something that was in play in the early church and in the, in the, in the first uh, century to century and a half of the church's history. This is something that emerged later. Um, and, and the point here is that what, 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 what you can see happened is that this idea of bishop was distinguished, bishop or overseer, or the Greek term episkopos, was distinguished not just in terms of its linguistic components, but in terms of its actual meaning for its station of leadership. It was given a distinct term of, of something more superior or having more authority than this term presbyteros, which is translated elder. Okay, so you have this, this um, hierarchy that's set up between these two terms that are used in the New Testament, and more weight of authority was given to the term episkopos, which is translated overseer, than the term presbyteros, which is translated elder. And that's, that's kind of what led to this interpretation of hierarchical structure and giving these titles that had authoritative weight behind them. What we would argue as a church, and what you see in this early part of the church's history that I just referenced, is this interchangeability between these two terms. That they, in fact, don't represent different positions of leadership in the church. They're just two different ways of expressing the same role or the same function. One, and they're just, it's just like describing some, you know, someone in two different ways, but it's the same person having the same function. And so that's, that's what we uh, embrace here at Faith Community Church. Um, you see this probably most vividly in the New Testament, although this is not the only reference point, but you see this in Acts chapter 20. You may recall from our study of the first 30 years of the church's history when we did this survey of Acts, you have the Apostle Paul, and he's, he spent quite a bit of time uh, on, on, his, um, on his last missionary journey in Ephesus. Three years he spent in Ephesus. So he became very close with the people in Ephesus and with the leaders in Ephesus. And toward the end of his time, or excuse me, after he left Ephesus, he ended up in Miletus before he was heading to Jerusalem and ultimately would go through all the trials and everything that would ultimately lead to his journey to Rome, which ultimately led to his execution. So this is sort of like a farewell event for him with these people that he'd grown so fond of. And you see this, this um, testimony of this, this uh, um, farewell in Acts chapter 20. Starting in verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus, he, the Apostle Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church to come to him. Elders, presbyteros, he sent for them. So you have Paul sending for these men, these leaders, these elders of the church that he had grown so fond of in ministry while he was there with them for three years, and he, and he sent for them to come to him in Miletus. And then it says in verse 18, And when they came to him, he said to them. And then it goes on to sort of quote Paul's instructions, Paul's farewell address to these leaders, these elders, these, this group of presbyteros, a plurality of them, from the church in Ephesus. You get down to verse 28, and here's what he says. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So in that same context, you have this reference to this group of men who were elders, presbyteros, of the church in Ephesus that he calls to himself in Miletus so that he can speak to them and, give them and, and bid them farewell, his last farewell of them or to them. And then he refers to them as overseers. So you have this terminology, two distinct terms, two distinct Greek words, translated into English in two different ways, but, but representing or referring to the same body, the same group of men. And that's the point here. And that's, what, that's the way it was in the early part of the church's history. And then it changed dramatically, and, and, and for a thousand years plus beyond that, it changed significantly up until the time of the Reformation. And really much of this is attributed to Ignatius, as I said before, who, who sort of laid out this, this single bishop, a body of presbyters or elders, and then a company of deacons to support the servant ministries of the church. So he established or wrote about this three-tiered governance that sort of took hold and became more of the norm. Um, It's interesting that you can see this summarized, and even Jerome, the writer Jerome, one of the early church fathers writing in around 385 AD in his commentary on Titus. He's writing in a commentary on Titus, and as you know, Titus 1 speaks about the uh, qualifications for elders. And so Jerome himself, right, looking back in, in a more recent time from his point of writing, a few hundred years prior to him, he says this, The presbyter is the same as the bishop. And before parties had been raised up in religion by the provocations of Satan, that's the heresies, the churches were governed by the senate of the presbyters, by a body of elders. But as each one sought to appropriate to himself those whom he had baptized, instead of leading them to Christ, so he starts describing factions that begin to emerge. As a result of these heresies, you have these leaders in the church that that they don't want to just sort of offer up some other way of interpreting a passage of Scripture. They're wanting to take the church in a completely different direction. And as a result, they create factions and they take people with them and they start new congregations. And that's what we talked about for several of these heretical movements, that they weren't just sort of aberrant teachings. They were actually organized movements that they developed congregations around and they developed hierarchy of church leadership themselves in a factious way from uh, dividing from uh, the true church. So Jerome is writing about this. He says the churches were governed by the synod of presbyters, but as each one sought to appropriate him to himself those whom he had baptized, instead of leading them to Christ, it was appointed... That, the one of the, that one of the presbyters, elected by his colleagues, should be set over all others and have chief supervision over the general well-being of the community. So there you go. Jerome's just sort of describing. This is kind of how this emerged. This is how this developed. Without doubt, it is the duty of the presbyters to bear in mind that, they, that by the discipline of the church, they are subordinated to him who has been given them as their head. But it is fitting that that the bishops on their side do not forget that they are set over the presbyters. It is the result of tradition and not by the fact of a particular institution by the Lord. 
So Jerome himself is describing what had emerged up to that, up by his point in time, this bishopric rule put in place not as a matter of biblical interpretation, but as a matter of tradition. Okay? Now, this takes us to, so this, that, that's sort of like, we have to jump, we have to go to the Reformation to get some of our bearings on church governance for our particular church. But we also can leapfrog this whole period of a thousand plus years of church history where you have sort of the emergence of the imperial church and what is the, the infrastructure and the hierarchy of what is the modern day Roman Catholic church and in some ways the Eastern Orthodox church. Also other, other similar uh, versions of that where you have this singular authority um, you even have Protestant versions of that. You understand that, right? You have this idea of a senior pastor, might be called a senior pastor, who's really the, the, the boss, the head of the church, quote-unquote, not the head meaning Christ, but the head of, the, the, of a local church. And they might have some board of elders or some board, but they're really, they're really the head of that group. So it's not just a, a Catholic thing. It's a Protestant thing as well in terms of how it manifests itself. But our church uh, is different from that, in that we have a, a governing um, approach that we believe is more uh, in line with the New Testament, with all of its potential tension that can emerge. And here's what, here's what we need to understand from the standpoint of not just history, but also in how we tend to be wired. And history gives us great indication of this, through epic after epic after epic. You can go back into the Old Testament. The people of Israel, what did they cry for? Give us a king, right? Most people are inclined toward this. Tell me what I'm supposed to do so then I can set about to do it. That's how most people are wired. I don't care how much you want to talk about the rugged individualism that characterizes the American, you know, Sentiment. I'm not talking about a country or a particular culture. I'm talking about human nature here. You see this throughout time immemorial. We are oriented toward, I mean, you think to yourself, go back in history, even recent history, and imagine how do you get dictators who are deplorable human beings that ascend to massive levels of power and authority. How how is that even possible? But over and over again throughout history, that's what you see happening. Time and time and time and time again. Well, the same kind of tendency, insofar as it's not sanctified and not continually addressed uh, with us individually and collectively, that kind of that kind of thing emerges because we just want to be told what to do, not in a necessarily a, a robotic kind of way. It's just that we want the security of knowing that we're doing the right thing. And if we're in and of ourselves uncertain about it, then we want someone that we look to that has some kind of perceived authority or wisdom or knowledge or intelligence or you know, clever ways of communicating or whatever it might be, if they start telling us this is what you should do, you're like, okay, it gives us a sense of security. Because we're not acting of our own accord. We're, we're taking the counsel and the advice of someone that we have invested some degree of trust because they're, they, they're knowledgeable in the subject or 
They speak with great authority and conviction, so they must be telling the truth. Or whatever it might be, whatever mental and emotional gyrations we might go through. But that, it gives us a sense of assurance that we're doing the right thing. And it's really that that we're after. It's not this mindset of mindless servitude or subservience. What we're really after is a sense of self-assurance and security that we're doing the right thing. It's really an element of fear associated with it. And potentially a willful, persistent ignorance of what the scriptures teach. That could also be playing into it. There is a level or a degree of persistent tension in the way that the Lord has established leadership in the church. It's unavoidable, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Our doctrinal statement says it like this. The one supreme authority for the church is Christ, and the church leadership, gifts, order, discipline, and worship are all appointed through His sovereignty as found in the Scriptures. Christ is the head of the church. Nobody's going to argue that, and nobody in their right mind anyway is going to argue that, who's professing any kind of version of Christianity. Christ is the head of the church. Okay, check. The biblically designated leadership under Christ and over the assembly are elders, who are also called overseers, bishops, pastors, and pastor teachers. God's design is that these elders be males. Yikes! And that each church be led by a plurality of these men. These leaders lead or rule as servants of Christ and have his authority in directing the church. The congregation is to submit to their leadership. These elders alone are entrusted with authority, but are joined in service to the church by deacons. Both elders and deacons must be tested in order to validate their biblical qualifications. Now, I have, you, I have a question for you. How do you think that that statement from our doctrinal statement would play in modern discourse? Patriarchy! I mean, it's just whatever. Pick your, pick your, you know, pick your vitriolic response, right? That's our doctrinal statement on church leadership. Now let's break this down a little bit because the doctrinal statement has sort of superscript notes to footnote where all these scripture references, where all these positions are coming from in scripture. So I want to kind of just tease this out a little bit um, just so that we understand that we, we, stand in, we stand firmly in the truth of scripture, but also in the early church's history as well. And that what we see emerging subsequent to the you know, first or early part of the second century is an aberration. It's an acquiescence to worldly things. It's a, it's, it's, it's a fear of not having control. I mean, you think about it. If the church begins to be assaulted by some type of heretical movement that begins to take root and people begin to fall away, wouldn't the tendency of even otherwise faithful people in the church be to want to do something to get control of that situation? Well, you can see how that pendulum could swing in an aberrant direction. And, and really, that's a confession that we don't really believe that Christ is the head of the church. We don't really believe that he will build his church. We don't really believe that all that the Father gives him, he will lose none of them. We believe that somehow we've got to make sure that no one falls away and we're going to make sure that no one is led astray. In other words, we take matters in our own hands. And that's how this stuff happens. 
But if we're faithful, we live confidently in the human tension of a plurality of elders' leadership, the way it's set up in the New Testament, trusting that it's, it's the Lord's church, and He's going to build it. And our job is to be faithful, faithful to Him, faithful to the Scriptures. Christ is the head of the church. That's the first point. And this is an obvious one, but just listen to Colossians chapter 1. This is one of the, the references from the, from the doctrinal statement. Colossians 1, 15 to 18 Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Pretty easy logical progression there. If he is preeminent in all things, then he is obviously the head of the church. If he is the creator of all things, then obviously he is the head of the church. But that's just the biblical reference there. And, as I just sort of alluded to, an ever-deepening understanding of that reality is paramount for a church to function properly under an elder rule. It is absolutely paramount. For some of the reasons I just referenced in terms of our tendency to want to gain control over things that we think are becoming disruptive and, and, and we want to operate on our own timetable for when that control and what that control should look like and when it should be achieved and all that. This principle is not just an easy checkbox. Of course Christ is the head of the church. No, it's more than that. It's, it, it, is the, it is the foundational governing principle that has to be the persistent reference point in terms of understanding how we function as a church. Okay, next point. So Christ is the head of the church. No small statement. No sort of simple checkbox, but foundational. Secondly, elders are biblically designated leaders under Christ. So you have several different points that you could go to. I just referenced one. Acts twenty twenty eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. You have various references. You have Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. You have 1 Timothy 3. We're going to look at that in a little bit. You have Titus chapter 1. But this is what the New Testament gives as the, as the designated leadership in the local church. Overseers, plural, elders, Greek term presbytera, excuse me, episkopos, which the term bishop is derived, from which the term bishop is derived. So elders are the biblically designated leaders under Christ. That's, that's not really too controversial. It's just a matter of what you do with these two different terms, elder or, or um, bishop or overseer. Do you separate them and give them different stations, or do you see them as overlapping and interchangeable? Our church sees them as overlapping and interchangeable. <clears throat> Next point from the doctrinal statement, elders are to be males. This is probably the most controversial of all the statements in our, in our current time. Um, <clears throat> and in, and you, you, have, uh, you have a potential for tremendous misunderstanding about this principle and the reasons for it. But I think the most clear 
uh, approach to understanding it from Scripture is what Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. And again, you, you, read, these, you read these with a modern mindset of, of what I, you know, there's a, um, there's a new term now that's often bantered about, um, toxic masculinity. Have you heard that term? It's kind of a media-friendly, a media, you know, provocative term as well as a term in, in, in sort of feminist circles. But it's this idea that, you know, men are, there, there's a toxic element in men that has to be sort of dealt with. You know, this whole Me Too movement and uh, sexual assault and all that sort of stuff. It's almost like it's resident in all men. And, and you know, it's just, it's a part of being masculine, this toxicity that's there. But you start reading this this type of passage, and immediately you can, if you if your if your mind is being shaped by secular notions of gender roles and gender distinctions, rather than by scripture, this will be a complete affront to you. Okay. First Timothy two twelve to fifteen. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Time out. Are you kidding me? Did he just say that? That is so offensive to me. As a man who respects women, that's an offensive statement, right? I mean, you see how that can just immediately, it just you're like, whoa. I mean, even though we are committed to the Scriptures and we profess our desire to be faithful to the Scriptures, even though I just read our doctrinal statement and it says it straight up, you read that and you have to kind of be, you have to recognize on the, at the outset that our, our thinking is, is shaped by the cultural oxygen that we're breathing and the, and the lexicon of terms that, you know, we hear and, and see on the news and, and, and are, are sort of bantered about as what should be right and wrong and good and bad and, and, and normal versus aberrant as it relates to male-female roles. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that we're living in a day and time where male and female distinctions are being absolutely obliterated. So in this idea of, of, um, of equality and tolerance... And human liberality and freedom, even what is part of our created essence as male and female, is being obliterated in our culture. Well, unfortunately, the scripture doesn't move off of that. The scripture is not tracking with that. So Paul, again, he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Man, how many of the ladies are about ready to throw something at me? It's like layer after layer. And I'm going to talk about this in just a little bit, a little bit more. Some people would say, they would stop right there, and they would say, this is the Apostle Paul accommodating to the culture of the day, which was very patriarchal in its orientation, and he was trying to kind of speak to the, the culture of the day and accommodate to it without provoking you know, some type of unrest in the church. And, and, sort of, and sort of speaking to what would constitute order in, in the, the assembly of the church as it related to men and women. Well, there's a problem when you get to the next verse because he's not talking about culture. He says, for Adam was formed first. Now what do you do with that? Now we're going back to creation. So this somehow is tied more substantively to something bigger than just what was going on in the first century in Ephesus as an example. 
He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. So here the Apostle Paul is taking this principle of how women should function in the life of the church, in relationship to men, in the life of the church, in particular in relationship to leading and teaching and exercising authority, all the way back to creation. And here's what we see in the creation account when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and then you see what happened in Genesis chapter 3. There is no problem at all with both created in the image of God equal in essence before God, but distinct in role and function, being complementary with one another. No problem. After the fall, that almost defines the problem. That is the nature of the problem between the sexes. It is endemic with the consequence of the curse. Your desire will be for your husband but he will rule over you. In other words, the elements of the curse are such. Woman wants to manipulate and, and lead and rule man. Man will use his authority as the stronger sex to overrule women. Look at history. Over and over and over and over and over again. What believers are called to and in particular in the context and life of the church as the representative of Christ, his body, right, on the planet, are to be redeeming what was lost at creation. We're to be redeeming that. We're not to be somehow accommodating to modern ideas and versions of male-female relationships. We're to be redeeming what was the original created order and understanding that brought joy and fellowship with the Creator and, 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 and resulted in a beautiful complementary role and function of man and woman, husband and wife, male-female relationships in that context. The church is the family of God. You have that metaphor put forward in the New Testament. It is also a foundational pillar of society. If somehow you were to define the structure of order, of order and leadership in the church vastly differently than what your foundational structures are for home and family, there would be constant discord between the two. Constant. But our call is to redeem these roles. So the Apostle Paul, he's partly referring to or speaking toward something that was going on in the first century in that there was, um, there was an abuse of, I mean, he, before you get there, he talks about how they should adorn themselves, right? So you had this association of women with temple prostitutes, uh, with aberrant uh, forms of religious practice and worship that he's trying to create a separation from in terms of the New Testament church. But he's also taking the believers of the New Testament church and the first century church back to the order of creation and saying, this is how this, is, this, is how this, this, is how this works. Then you bounce over to Ephesians and you see the, the, the household codes that he lays out there when he talks about 
husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters and that whole coat. In, in, the, in the section on husbands and wives, the wives' role of submission has nothing to do with something about the man other than it's what God ordained in terms of role and function. It has everything to do with the wife's submission as unto the Lord. And so insofar as men and women exercise their role and function, whether it be in the context of home and family or in the context of the church, outside what has been ordained by God that is reflected most vividly and perfectly in creation before the fall, we are violating what God has called us to in terms of church order and governance. We're violating it. This is not a statement. Paul is not making a statement about giftedness, about importance, about abilities. None of that. None of that is in view. I have heard many, many, many women teach in a context of like a women's retreat or whatever. I've read books by women. One of the most, most robust and significant books on biblical worldview is written by Nancy Piercy called Total Truth. It is a tome, unbelievably well documented, a brilliant woman. I've, I've been instructed by that. So this has nothing to do with intellectual competence, none of that. This is about redeeming what was lost in creation, and the church being the most prominent visible uh, testimony of that work of redemption to the world. Now, how do you explain all of that by just dropping these verses into a conversation with an unbeliever in our current time? That, that, is, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in illumining our minds to what is true. You can't just get that on the surface by just talking about it. But nevertheless, this is my big soapbox spiel to say this idea of male leadership, we have to be on guard to, to not allow our thinking to be co-opted by secular ideas about it. There is a much more profound rationale in the heart and mind of God as revealed in Scripture than how our view of these things has been lowered down to as a result of the fall. And it's playing out over several centuries now. Playing out vividly in our day and time, in our culture. Well, he goes on in, in chapter 3 of, verse, uh, of, of 1 Timothy. When he's giving the qualifications of eldership, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, or this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. So just... You get into the particulars, and it's a specific reference to a male and a husband as the, the instructions and the qualifications are listed out. So again, elders are to be males. I don't expect someone thinking from a secular perspective on male-female relationships to like that at all. They'll hate it. They'll despise it. It's an offense. That's why you have to dig deep and go back to pre-fall creation order and really wrestle with that to understand what, what's at, at play here. And then go ahead and jump into Ephesians and start looking at the roles of men and women and husbands and wives and what that's really all about. It's about the church and it's about giving a picture of Christ and his relationship to the church. 
It's not about who gets to make decisions about where we're going to go to lunch after church. It's not about that. And yet, when you look at the common arguments around male-female relationships, feministic arguments, you might as well be talking about who gets to make the call, Italian or Chinese. That's Because that's really at the essence what it's about. It's, it's that simplistic in its understanding relative to what we're talking about in light of the revelation of God's word. Well, the other thing you see here is a plurality of elders. So again, this cuts right across the grain of this idea of one, one guy large and in charge, you know, I'm, I'm the man and I've got this group of people that advise me, but, you know, ultimately I make the call. And sometimes I'll feign some deference to them, but really I'm in charge. Um, <clears throat> the plurality of elders, you see this over and over again. In Acts chapter 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas, it says, appointed elders for them in every church. That was part of their missionary work is to appoint elders in every church, plural. Acts 15.2, this is a heading toward the Jerusalem Council where they're having to deal with this controversy over the Judaizers uh, pushing um, circumcision and adoption or, or, or uh, following the Mosaic Law as a means of salvation. They're heading into this Jerusalem Council. It says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they're going to the elders at the church in Jerusalem. It's plural. Acts chapter 2017, I referenced this before, but Paul calls the elders from the church at Ephesus to come to him. And then James chapter 5 verse 14 is a very practical statement, but it elucidates this point. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So again, James is not trying to argue for plurality of elders. He's just stating what is so, what is understood to be a governing principle in the life of the church. 1 Timothy 5.17, Titus 1.5, 1 Peter 5.1 and 2. We're going to look at 1 Peter in just a minute. But it's a plurality. Now, I'm going to stop right here and make two important points. Plurality elder rule in the life of the church will only function in a healthy and fruitful way insofar as the people in the church are faithful, committed followers of Christ and students of God's Word and hold a high view of Scripture. And the men who are chosen to be elders are committed to character-driven humility and leadership. If any of those two things get wildly out of sync, it's a train wreck. It's an absolute train wreck. This idea of plurality of elders, you have, here, here's some of the tension. So you've got the tension piece for, in, in some ways with this idea of male leadership, but then you've got more tension when you talk about a plurality of leadership. Well, how do, you, how do you resolve when you've got sort of conflict? Not everybody's on the same page. I mean, how do you, how do you get anything done? I mean, if everybody is sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a body of equals, isn't there, isn't there a potential for just everything stagnating and, and not moving forward in any way because no one can come to agreement on something? That's, what I, that's why I say the character of the men is paramount. 
And I can tell you from personal experience, what I have seen over and over again is a level of humility and deference that makes it work. And it has nothing to do with some kind of stratified system of decision-making policy that we've adopted so that we can just say, well, if we all come to loggerheads over something, we do this, 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 and this, and then we fix it. What this flows out of is the actual living Christian character of the men involved. There's a situation, I can tell you even this past week, where there was a level of deference that was just plainly stated and willingly submitted to because of the recognition of the authority of Christ and the authority of His Word as it relates to how this should work. It flowed out of the individual character of a man and his commitment and conviction about the truth of Scripture and the authority of Christ over his church. So I'm just telling you, that is how this works. That is how this tension works. Imagine, if elder rule was about picking the the cream of the crop dudes from the church and putting them on the board because they're the whiz-bang smartest, most knowledgeable in the scripture, and let's throw them together and just see what they can come up with. We're missing this giant thing called the individual sanctification of those men as well. Everybody involved is involved in ongoing sanctification, of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God is at work in us, both the will and to work for His good pleasure. And you see that at work when you have this clear conviction and understanding of the need for plurality in leadership. Now, there are some that would write about a uh, first among equals kind of concept. And you see that, uh, in, for example, in the New Testament. Who would you say is the first among equals among the apostles? Peter, right? You can look at that statistically. You can look at how many references there are to Peter, for example, in the Gospels. How many times Peter is quoted as speaking up and speaking out. I mean, over and over and over again. You have a first among equals. You could say Peter, James, and John kind of get elevated and sort of, and, and sort of stand out. So you have this, this idea of first among equals. You even have elements of that, that concept in the Trinity, don't you? So there are times when you have, in, for, for example, on, on our older board, you have those that, that are sort of their, their, their understanding of an issue, their grasp of the biblical imperatives or implications around that issue are very, very substantive and strong, and so there's just immediate and quick deference that's just yielded without even a question. And that person can be, kind of be elevated in that moment as a first among equals. So that does help in, in, in kind of this process of of leading and governing and providing oversight in the life of the church. But if, for example, Peter, um, after he denied Christ, wept bitterly, and then was restored by Christ, and then went to Jerusalem, and then the Spirit came, and he preached at Pentecost, and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day, and he started walking with swagger saying, did you check that out? 3,000. Count them. Right? That's not what you see. In fact, when you see Peter throughout his ministry, he's humbled even more. When he goes to Cornelius, he's humbled even further about his understanding of the gospel, right? When you, when you read the writings, the letters of Peter in First and Second Peter, you see this man who is, who is strong and writes with conviction, but with tremendous humility and deference to others. And we're going to read that in just a second. Because this flows out of the character of the men. 
plurality of elders. Got to hurry. Elders are to be servant leaders, or shepherds is the term that you see. And that's what I've kind of been alluding to. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5 to 5 is a great picture of this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Apostle Paul is exhorting the elders to shepherd, to, to show leadership through service. This picture of a shepherd and sheep is a great picture uh, for leadership in the church. Shepherds were with the sheep, had fellowship with the sheep, tended to the sheep, got dirty with the sheep. They were not some elevated band of elite intellectuals that sort of just laid upon the people their brilliance. It's a great picture of leadership in the church. Elders would be servant leaders. They do have authority, but it's, a, it's an authority that's most vividly manifested and demonstrated through service. Congregations are to be subject or submit to elders. Hebrews 13, 7 and verse 17 as well says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then down in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for what would be, for that would be of no advantage to you. Heavy weight on the submission side and on the eldership side. Both are heavy, heavy, heavy obligations for the congregation and for the elder. It's laid out there in Hebrews. And then finally, elders must be tested and meet biblical qualifications. And I'm just going to read through this. You've seen this before. We've been taught on it before. But he says, in, uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, to This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for the church of God? There's that equation or that, that relationship of church and household right there. How will he care for the church? He must not be a a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so they may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. In other words, we're talking about tested, proven men of genuine character that is, it covers the waterfront in terms of their lives and what, what people see of their lives, and it's noticeable. They're under observation. People know them. Again, this is how this works. This only works in the life and context of a healthy church where people are in genuine fellowship and in mutually submitting to one another and understanding and applying the truth of Scripture to their own lives individually and growing in their understanding of how the truths of Scripture apply to the church collectively. It's the only way this functions properly. And that's why so many churches don't have this form of church governance because it's not easy. 
It requires a healthy, maturing, sanctified body of believers and men in leadership who are driven by a conviction of character and purpose given by Christ himself. And the weight of that maintains a level of humility and dependence that's unquestioned. That's, that's, that's our church. That's how we seek to operate into, into function in terms of our church governance. So we have a pastor teacher in Shane Kohler who's uniquely gifted in the role that he's been placed in. He's probably, technically for sure, the most knowledgeable in the scriptures. He's working on his PhD to give you more knowledge of the scriptures. And yet he's a man of incredible humility and routine deference to yahoos like me from time to time. And I'm not even an official elder. I mean, I'm not even technically an elder right now. And I've seen him demonstrate deference. So that's just one example. And that happens all over the place, all over the board. I just want to give you an encouragement that this is, I'm speaking to you from the standpoint of this is, this is the only way this functions properly. Men are prone toward pride. Men are prone toward control. And at the moment that we allow ourselves as a church to foster an environment where that can happen, or as elders to allow that to go unchecked, the whole thing can break down. That's why it's dependent upon us to really be the church collectively. I've kept you late. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.